Welcome to the Gritty Leaders Club, a podcast asking the hard questions about leadership. Each episode explores a tension or paradox of leadership, asking how founders, entrepreneurs and scale-up CEOs decide which way to turn. My name is Ben Wales. And I'm Ian Windle. Joining the two of us, we'll have guests, founders and leaders of successful businesses, sharing their stories, as well as authors, keynote speakers and experts digging into the rough and the smooth of leading. If you like what you hear, subscribe and join the club. Tell us your opinion, ask a question or introduce a guest. We'd love to hear from you. Okay, welcome to episode six. This is Ian and Ben back with you and we're at an episode called Failure is Not an Option. Looking at how organizations deal with failure. And we're gonna bring a few ideas into play here. And we're gonna look at particularly the Stockdale paradox, which we'll come on to in a minute. Before we get into that, Ben, what's caught your attention recently? GridServe has my attention. GridServe is a sustainable energy company. They are a technology and market leader. And since I first learned about GridServe, which I guess is two or three years ago now, they've constantly been achieving groundbreaking milestones of all kinds. And it's a super exciting time because GridServe is shortly to open the UK's first electric forecourt, which will be near Braintree in Essex. And at this facility, GridServe will be able to fast charge 30 electric vehicles at the same time, adding about 200 miles of range in just 20 minutes. And that's only going to get faster in the future. All the electricity All the electricity is generated by solar, so it's totally carbon neutral. And get this, GridServe plans 100 electric forecourts, the length and breadth of the UK, in the next five years. It's incredible. A fantastic achievement, a real game changer. And listen to this too, GridServe's purpose to deliver sustainable energy and move the needle on climate change. Mm. Talk about a purpose that gets you out of bed in the morning. For me, this is right up there with putting a man on the moon. We often return to what Ellen Sirleaf said, that the size of your dreams must always exceed your current capacity to achieve them. And GridServe's purpose, tipping the needle on climate change, for me is a brilliant example. And just look what they're achieving, what's possible when they strive towards it. This is great, isn't it? You're really getting into your carbon neutral and sustainable planet stuff here, Ben. You had your jacket on the last episode, I remember, which was wonderful, and now into fully electric forecourts. So I'm looking forward. I think there's a theme developing here, which is really interesting. So yeah, good on you. Thanks, Ian. GridServe, good luck. I'm looking forward to charging with you next month. And Ian, what's got your attention? Well, um, listeners will know that I was intrigued by the Michael Jordan Netflix series called The Last Dance. And I'm not a basketball person. I've never picked up a basketball in my life. But it was just intriguing from a point of view of somebody with a massive ego, huge talent, who was integrated into a team and and actually realized that he couldn't fulfill his own dreams without being part of a, a team and that team had to win what intrigued me is to see connections between things and so one of the people who doesn't figure fully in the michael jordan last dance series is his coach phil jackson so i was intrigued to think well what what's this guy he must be quite special So I looked up and found Phil Jackson's book, one of his books called 11 Rings. And you get a ring in America. They're quite common. There's a ring for being having a purple heart and there's a ring for winning a championship in the NBA. And it's called 11 Rings. He won six championships with the Chicago Bulls and five with the LA Lakers. So this guy was quite special. And when you consider this guy's coming in to a group of people who are paid an absolute fortune, who the public adore, who are driving in, driving any car they wish, wearing any clothes they want, and they can afford anything. And you've got to meld this group of people together. So it's fascinating to see how Phil Jackson did it. I wanted to know what kind of coach he was. Dealing with egos was his big thing. 
having tough conversations. You know, we've talked about that before, this thing about leadership, having to have tough conversations. And boy, did he have tough conversations with these people he had to deal with. You know, Michael Jordan, Kobe Bryant was another one who unfortunately died earlier this year. Shaquille O'Neal, Dennis Rodman, Scotty Pippen, all these amazing basketball players. You know, Dennis Rodman famously... I mean, he, he dated Madonna. He brought Madonna into the changing room one night. He went off to Las Vegas on a bender. And what would he do? He'd treat him as an individual. He'd bring him back. He gave him some time. He put his arm around him and he brought him back into the fold. And he managed to work with people like this. And of course, the flip of that is when you look at, you know, sports coaches like Alex Ferguson of Manchester United in the UK and how he wouldn't tolerate an ego, anyone who's bigger than the team got kicked out of the team. Whereas this guy, Phil Jackson, managed to bring the egos along with him in the team. And maybe that's part of the NBA. Maybe there's so many egos, you really can't get a team without some in there. But he was quite extraordinary. He was very innovative. He brought in mindfulness. He got them around a table before going onto the court and, and sessions away from basketball where they'd sit down and they'd, they'd meditate and things that was really hard to bring in for a while that he brought into the team. So really innovative coach, innovative leader, great team person. This sounds really interesting, Ian. And Phil Jackson sounds like a very human coach. He talks about bringing them back, putting his arm around their shoulder. I think so often what people really want is to be accepted. Mm -hmm. I think most leaders get that, that people need to feel accepted in an organisation, feel part of it. But this sounds a bit different. It's also about accepting people in the moment. That's right, absolutely. So, on to topic, today's episode, failure is not an option. Failure is not an option is a phrase often associated with Gene Kranz. Gene was the lead flight director of Apollo 13, the lunar mission during which the service module exploded and any idea of landing on the moon went out the window. It became all about, can we get our people home safely onto the ground alive? The incident unfolded on Gene and his team, and of course they were successful, and the astronauts got home safely and lived to tell the tale. And Gene said that actually the, the words failure is not an option isn't something he said at the time. But when Hollywood knocked and came to make the movie, the filmmakers had asked him, were there times when people just panicked? And Gene's answer was that, well, what we did in those moments was we calmly laid out the options and failure wasn't one of them. And then the film seized upon that and it became the famous saying that it is. And Gene Kranz, he used it as the title of his memoirs as well. So failure is not an option. It's about those moments where we could be paralysed with fear. People could panic. And... I think quite often in companies, if it's avoidable, if it's frightening, people do avoid these topics. They put their head in the sand. So one of the ways of exploring this that I know both you and I regularly use is the Stockdale Paradox. So let's start there. Ian, introduce the, the Stockdale Paradox to us. Well, I first came across this, I mean, I'd read a couple of Jim Collins's books, but we were fortunate enough, I know, to be in the same room in San Diego listening to the great man speak, and he really brought it to life. And it's one of his 12 questions, which you can see on his website. And Admiral James Stockdale was in the Hanoi Hilton between 1968 and 1974, tortured over 20 times, and of course, he didn't know or when he was going to get out of the Hanoi Hilton. And he was the most senior person in there. And Jim Collins met him and had some time with him. And he was shocked when he heard some of the things that, that Stockdale said. 
they could have they could have killed him but he wasn't going to get killed by lack of being resolute and having res- resilience and grit to get through this clearly stockdale was determined that this was going to be part of his life and not the end of his life and it, so we have this unwavering belief in the future but he combined that with seeing every day and, and and being able to address what he called the brutal facts so what was happening to him and and being very clear that these things were going to happen to him daily day in day out and he had to deal with them and jim collins asked him many questions one of them was who were the ones that didn't get through this and his response were the ones who died inside were the ones who who were the optimists and that's interesting isn't it because often we think no you need optimistic people in your business and he said the reason for that was they believed they'd be out by christmas and christmas came and christmas went and they weren't out they were still in there being tortured he said they died of a broken heart they were they were broken they they, they were broken and they couldn't get through so i think this you know this really ties back into what you're saying about failure is not an option we didn't put it on the table as one of the options and you know for admiral james stockdale who was clearly made of pretty stern stuff this wasn't on his table either so the stockdale paradox is is this we must retain faith that we will prevail in the end regardless of the difficulties and at the same time confront the most brutal facts of our current reality whatever they might be you know already i think we've got we've got value uh, of this you know failure is not an option is a line that i i hear used quite often and it, it worries me because if we start saying it without context without explaining it if we start saying that in the business failure is is not an option are we really setting up our people for success there uh, we're just saying you can't fail try harder is probably what they hear hmm. and that for me feels like a recipe for for burnout yeah not not a helpful thing so you know point number one we're not going to put the option of failure on the table we're going to find other options it's the first first point here let's get ourselves into uh, a position of choice i think there's a danger that if you go around the organization saying failure is not an option you might very well inhibit people in terms of taking the managed risk in terms of stretching themselves and stepping outside their comfort zone because and that's what you want to do because what what they don't want to hear is if you fail you're in trouble we we don't want people taking that approach and it reminded me of the quote i read from ariana huffington of huffington post and the author and uh, all the things she's done in life who said that failure is not the opposite of success but part of success and indeed, it was back in the Michael Jordan Netflix episodes where it came out the phrase that losers are winners. It, you can look at Wayne Gretzky in ice hockey and, you know, all these people who have these great quotes about, you know, I missed all the shots I never took. And this is the danger with this whole subject is we we shy away from failure and you know what i just written down as we were talking was well what exactly is failure so maybe put that back to you ben good points and there's two types aren't there there's the failure you invite as we're making progress uh we're constantly learning and inventing uh and developing the art of the possible in our organizations you know we want to stretch ourselves we've had a whole episode about stretch before and you know when the context is is progress and stretch and achieving more than we have before then of course we want to be trying things some are going to work some aren't going to work yeah and in that context failure is good let's fail often let's fail fast and when we get to the idea that's right we've got a way forward fail often fail fast find what works here we're talking about uh, a completely different type of situation you know admiral stockdale's situation apollo 13 we're talking about existential crisis Mm. if we don't find a way out of this Mm. the lights are out the game Mm. is over Mm. we're not going to be here tomorrow or next week whatever that event horizon is so the stakes are high 
Mm. It is a terrifying situation, mm. if you like. And the the reason that failure is not an option, we can't put it on the table, is you know, if we don't find a way out of this, mm. it's over. So that's that's our difficult second context that we're here to explore today. So the paradox has got two sides to it, of course. That's why it's a paradox. And what's your view on this? If you think of your own leadership role, the leaders you're you're working with, which side of the paradox do they find harder? Is it unwavering faith that we will prevail? We're going to get ourselves out of this existential crisis. And ultimately, we're going to be every bit as successful as we dream of. Or is it confronting the brutal facts? Which part of this do you think is the harder? I think for most people I've worked with, it's the latter. Mm-hmm. It's the confronting the brutal facts. I think it's that's that's the hard bit. When you're sitting down with people, it's much nicer to talk about the fact that, you know, it's quite a macho thing, isn't it? You know, we're, we're not going to fail. We're going to push on. We've got the answers. We're strong. We're creative. We've done it before. And the question is, you've never done it like this in this situation, you know, and, and therefore what are the brutal facts now you're facing? And I think it's only when you really get to grips with what those brutal facts are that you know how to respond to them. And that would have been the same with Apollo uh, and, you know, the same for Stockdale. When he understood that, when he, when he accepted that, then they can start to say, well, how do, we, how do we deal with this? And I think the danger for organizations is not really addressing those brutal facts. And that's got to come from the leader. I, you know, I think the pandemic was for some organizations, how well they sat there on day one and said, okay, these, these are the brutal facts. I saw probably like you, I saw some look at them very clearly, you know, within the first weekend, they'd scenario planned, they'd worked out what could be the worst case scenario with their business. They looked at what was they were in control of and what they weren't in control of. And they engaged the organization, they did remarkable uh, videos to engage people in the facts and in the vision so they combine them both and you know it's that honesty it's that authenticity of leadership uh, and for people going back to something we mentioned in the last episode if you want to engage your people you've got to show that you're an authentic leader and therefore you've got to show honesty and integrity and say look we, these are the facts because your people will probably have seen them anyway so are you facing them? Are you making them real? Are you putting them out there? And then are you saying, and, you know, we've thought about this and this is a way we're going to start to address them. And I think that's, that's, the, that's the piece that, that uh, makes sense. But, I, but to answer your question and just to re- sort of recap and, and paraphrase my earlier thoughts on that, I think the harder bit of all this is addressing the brutal facts. Okay, Ben, so what's it for you? Is it uh, the brutal facts or an unwavering belief in the future? I'm going to go for brutal facts as well, although partly because I wonder if any organisations that had a top leader who didn't carry enough belief and confidence in the future, those organisations failed a while back. (laughs) (laughs) You know, so... It it may be that that's a sort of a self-selecting question. If we just stay on that tangent for a moment, there's there's a point here about what is it that leaders are doing to support themselves and to uh, curate their own unwavering faith that they will prevail? Um, Are they conscious of how they're doing that? I know how I used to do that. So I used uh, uh, a Vistage CEO group. I used my coach. And today... I have two coaches coaching me uh, at, at any time. And, you know, these are all, all parts of what I do to make sure that my unwavering faith is strong. Mm. Um, mm. So maybe we shouldn't dismiss that quite so quickly. But yes, I think in most organisations, the really difficult bit, the bit that I see not happening the most often is confronting the brutal facts. And you talked about some of the reasons and some of the the obstacles at play there. I think another is 
people are quite often frightened to put the brutal facts on the table. This is very easy to see as criticising the leader above you. And it takes a really strong leader and culture, I think, for that to be okay. So, you know, I wonder how this plays out in some of the Eastern cultures where, you know, an important part of uh, the culture is to maintain face because that strikes me as a, you know, a real obstacle to this. And I think we have versions of that far more commonly than we realise in our organisations here in, in the UK and Europe and you know, Western organisations. So you're saying there's a big cultural element to this then, in this sort of culture we've set up and created you know, as leaders in our businesses about whether those cultures will, will keep us honest. Yeah, partly. I think it certainly contributes. I think another piece here is if I think of people in the organisation, managers, people at every level, actually, you know, when they see a a problem and it's a big, frightening, scary problem and Mm. they haven't got the first idea of what the answer might be, Mm. they hesitate to put it on the table because they haven't got, you know, they haven't got what to say next. Mm -hmm. They might not think it's their problem as well. Mm-hmm. You know, they might think this is a this is a CEO level problem. Mm-hmm. You know, so I think we get we get silence for these reasons as well. One of the ways that I used to instill still deal with this is we have a Stockdale Paradox session. It might be an hour long, ninety minutes on site, off site. I don't think it matters too much for this particular session. I'll start off with, you know, there's a great video of Jim Collins explaining the Stockdale Paradox. I'll play that. Mm-hmm. They've all seen it before. But I'll play that. Yeah, and then we'll spend some time purely in the brutal facts space. Mm-hmm. What are the brutal facts of our situation? I don't want to hear any answers yet. Mm-hmm. What are the brutal facts? Let's get them all onto the table. And you've, you've got to force the issue. Give people nowhere to turn. Don't let them get into answering. Uh, we just want the brutal facts on the on the table. And you you got to make it okay to put an existential problem threat on the table, which we have no answer for. Yeah, you got to make that okay. Yeah, and that often is a stumbling block. So three things that pop out of that for me. One is leaders need a peer group because they need somebody objectively and that's very difficult with your leaders around you to sometimes you know see the wood for the trees or they might be worried about their own careers etc or their own relationship with you but you need somebody to keep you in check of are you on are you on track to fulfill to push your unwavering belief and is that you know, have you still got one? Is that still right? Is it is it dynamic? Has it moved on? Is it is it correct for your business now? But also to push you to challenge you about your brutal facts in order for you to bring those back to your business. Because you say it's it's hard. And and the, and the third point I was going to make was, th- does this does this not come back to the vulnerability of the leader? How willing they are to be vulnerable with their people and whether they see vulnerability as a courage or a weakness? Yeah, of of course it does. I don't think there's anything more to say on that, actually. The leader doesn't always know what the brutal facts are, though, of course. So it's not as simple as, you know, Ian, you saying, well, hey, I'm going I'm to go first here. Mm-hmm. Um, this, I think, is a problem. It's an elephant in the room that we're not talking about. I think it could, you know, actually, this could really derail us. You can't necessarily go first in that way because you may not be able to see mm. what, what the issue is. So... You know, that vulnerability has to be modelled in in other situations. One of the ways I used to do that was frequently I would say, even in small situations, I got that wrong. Mm. Mm. Yeah, and that was uh, a frequent part of of my repertoire. Mm-hmm. Um, but, the, but the interesting thing you're saying there is, you know, you may not know what the brutal facts are as the leader. And, mm. a, and you feel you feel you feel vulnerable in coming to your leadership team and say, I don't know what the brutal facts are, guys. But but that's okay too. That's just another question. 
that's a question yeah. to say we're going to have three hours together and we are going to come at the end of that session and say we now agree what the brutal facts of our business are at the moment yeah. and uh, and probably the, the thing to do with that is to it's a bit like when you you know when i run a swot analysis session or a pestle analysis session with a senior leadership team you need you need to give them some advanced warning so that they actually prepare and do some work because it's 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 reasonably easy to do the the internal stuff, you know, our strengths and weaknesses, much harder to do our opportunities and threats. And with Pestle being an external analysis tool, again, you need to, you can't just think it up, think on your feet on that one. You probably need to divide and conquer and go and do a bit of research and come back and go, look, this is what's happening in the economy. This is what's happening with technology. These are how our products are going to be faced up in the future. So that you're able to have that brutal fact session before you move it on. So uh, I think I think it, you know there's no harm, and of course it's how you it's how you position that, isn't it? You know, if you're a leader coming to the to your top team and you're saying, do you know what? I don't think we do this enough, guys, and I, I want to make it a quarterly or a you know, six monthly session to, and we're going to call it raising the brutal facts or whatever we're going to do. And, but, but you know, this as you say, it's role modeling, it's asking the right questions, it's saying I don't know the answers yet, but together. We'll find them. Yeah, I think that's that's a good approach. I just called it the Stockdale Paradox session. Yeah, uh, yeah. yeah. In in my business, let let's keep going with this. You know, what are some of the things we as leaders can do to to get at the 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 brutal facts? So you mentioned another one there, Ian, which people will recognise: scenario planning, mm-hmm. and you know organizations should be planning the bad scenarios as well as the good scenarios and often they they don't do that so you know another one here is let's spend a bit of time planning the scenarios that could kill the organization Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. what are those scenarios we don't necessarily need to go too far into those but then at least we know what threats we're scanning for yeah yeah. And another way of asking that same question, which I've done is, what would we need to do to kill our organization today? Which is the same thing, in fact, but just twisting the question around a little bit. Yeah, um, you can twist it again. You can ask, you know, you, we've all got well-known competitors. Mm. Yeah, let, let's put them, let's put ourselves in their shoes. If they wanted to kill us, how would they do it? Yeah, yeah. absolutely. They twist it around that way as well. So Ben, have you got any examples? You know, I can think of some of the the big the big corporate examples where you know they've been faced with failure. Maybe they haven't assessed and looked at you know even major major players the brutal facts. And we've got lots of examples of where they've gone out of business. You know, Blockbuster being a really famous one, and Kodak being another one. But there are there are some great examples of companies that have gone very close to failure and then they've bounced back because they've actually realized at at, at a certain point, unless we address this, we are sunk. Perhaps let me start and see if if you've got other examples which might be useful. The biggest example, which I immediately thought of, you probably know where I'm going to go with this because I'm a big admirer of Jobs and Apple, but is Apple. Apple started back in 76. And in 85, Steve Jobs was sacked um, by the guy who he brought in, John Scully. And then they went through this uh, period of, you know, too many products and very unfocused and losing money and very, and came close to bankruptcy. While Whilst Jobs went off and played with Pixar and created Next, which wasn't a great business, certainly for its hardware. And then in 85, they, they bought Next, Apple did. And, and rehired Jobs as an interim CEO and then eventually became CEO again. And so, you know, I think we forget that Apple was really close to bankruptcy and they they weren't facing the brutal facts. And of course, when Jobs came back, he went, right, cut products, cut products, streamline, focus, and, you know, the rest is history. As you say, Ian, there's a ton of examples. Blockbuster held onto its bricks and mortar stores far too long. And of course, while they were doing that, it was a beautiful business. I remember being excited, choosing a movie and then posting it back through the return letterbox the next day. And then there came a point when Netflix would post me a DVD 
and I could post it back using the letterbox outside my house after watching it, and I never visited a Blockbuster again. And by the time Blockbuster reacted, it was way too late, and just look at Netflix today. Kodak is another. And these are stories of holding on to a successful strategy for too long. And rather than going from good to great, companies we admire can go from good to gone. Mm. But you asked about smaller companies, and I think we often don't get to hear those stories because either those companies fizzle out, if they don't address the brutal facts and there really is one that will finish them, then sadly they get wiped out. Mm. We don't get to hear the story. You know, it's a bit like if a tree falls in a forest and there's nobody there to hear it, does it still make a sound? Alternatively, if the smaller company does acknowledge their brutal facts and they prevail, then the story we hear is a different one. We hear about what comes next, their future successes. They tend not to tell us, wow, that was close. We were almost toast there. So a personal story, one of the moments that comes to my mind, I suppose a little bit like Blockbuster and Netflix, is being in a position of having a single great customer producing millions of revenue, the lion's share, and us doing great work for them. But the customer organization was changing and changing globally, and we absolutely relied on them. And it was hard to acknowledge when we saw the changes that signposted the end of that chapter for us, that it was going to happen. But it did, and that part of our company closed, and sadly some great people and friends went with it, and it was a frightening time. But we'd responded just in time, both to manage the transition and to have another proposition and route to market, up and coming part of our business that we could lean into and accelerate. So one of the questions is, what can we do if we're leading a team or a company and want to guard against holding on to something for too long? And one thing to look at as a leader is, what's your question to statement ratio? And what's the question to statement ratio in the team? Are you asking enough questions to invite new perspectives, different challenges, alternatives? Or actually, are you or the team leading with far too many statements? Because then we can blindly perpetuate the status quo and bake in an assumption that what we're doing today is right for tomorrow. So, What's your question to statement ratio in your leadership? I think that I think the thing that I'm just thinking of as you're as you're talking is it's also this ability to reinvent yourself. Talked about that earlier um, and reinvent your business and and to know that as a leadership team, once you've created you know decision filters like purpose, vision, values, and strategy, you know your competitive advantage, these aren't set in stone forever. And the danger is we, we've been successful because we've followed some guidelines, which we've set. Now, clearly, values aren't going to change much and purpose is unlikely to change much. But vision should be reviewed. Products and services need to be reviewed. Your point of differentiation in the marketplace needs to be reviewed. And there is a danger of sort of continuing on with the same constraints that you've built without challenging them regularly and you know at least annually but probably quarterly uh, for the best companies is looking at what we can control what's going on and reevaluating some of those things that are useful when we set them up absolutely useful and vital but don't let them constrain us in our thinking and force us into a straitjacket yeah, so good question for the the top team is what's gone unchallenged for too long? Yeah. What do we need to question in fact? So here's another approach that I often use again about 90 minutes question storming and you know the the scene setting for this session would be yeah this could be the top team but bring others into this as well. 
you know, diversity. Let's not let's not dive into diversity right now, but diversity amongst a group of people that does this piece of thinking in the organization is ultra important. It's why it's why companies have non-exec directors, by the way, isn't it? Yeah. Uh, they're that little bit independent. They should be able to see and call out some of these brutal facts that for whatever reason might not surface inside. But put together the session and the frame is we're going to gather questions for the next 90 minutes. And the questions are what are the questions that we as an organization, as a leadership team, will need to have answered and answered well if we are going to be as successful as we want to be in 18 months' time or three years' time or big organizations, they might even ask this with you know, uh, a 10-year uh, horizon. NASA does that. NASA has uh, what they call the decadal survey. Mm-hmm. Uh, where they ask internally, what are the questions we need to be working on during the coming decade mm-hmm. to be successful? Mm-hmm. But do that in the organization. Get mm-hmm. the people that count, range perspectives. What are all of the questions, as many as we can think of, mm-hmm. that we need to answer and answer well to be every bit as successful as we dream of? I think that's great. I, I love that question storming idea. Uh, I think organizations generally and, and people generally we want to jump to the answer because we want to move on because it's fast paced because it's great to to think you've got an answer it takes away the stress we know if you're doing something if you've got an action you can move on so i find one of the challenges we have as coaches is getting people to ask more questions to step back to reflect and to take the time and the question storming is a great way of doing that before we we get to the answers. And the lovely thing about question storming, of course, is that it's very empowering because people can look at your answer and say, <laughs> which you shouldn't do, of course, but they can, or they can look at you in that in that way. But questions are different. Questions are you know, much more liberating in a way because we can all have a question and we can all put a really hard question on the table. And actually just the vulnerability, going back to that earlier point we talked about, of a leader coming in saying, we're going to do question storming. It's wonderful. Wonderful. So that's a great example for the organization. Let's start with the questions. Let's not jump mm. to the answers. Yeah, set it up differently if you want. What are the hardest questions we're going to need to answer? Mm. And yeah, and it's implicit. You've given permission there to put a question on the table that does not have an easy answer. Yeah. But, you know, something else in here that I think of, as you said, there's a tendency always to want to answer, to jump to the answer. Yeah. Yeah. And and this again was one of my go-tos. Always have a choice. Yeah. And this is something we can make a habit in in any business, in any organization, in the little situations and and the big ones. You know, what are the options we're choosing between? And let's make sure we've always got a number mm. uh, of them. If we've only got one option, that's a problem. Yeah, me. Yeah, we're not, um, thinking, so, we're not thinking deep enough, are we? There's always more than one deep. option. And again, I would stop meetings and I would say, hang on, sounds like we're only talking about one option here. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. next 20 minutes, mm-hmm. we are surfacing options. Mm-hmm. Yeah, And as, as, as teams get good at that, you know, they find different ways to do it. There's techniques, you know, six thinking hats, which I don't like, by the way. <laughs> but techniques like that, but you know, they'll find ways to do it. Uh, somebody will play uh, devil's advocate, for example. Let's put the devil's advocate option on the table. Let's put the bad options on the table as well. Mm. Yeah, and it begins to tease out uh, that actually there are more more options, and uh, yeah, and then eventually we find that actually we've got a few good options uh, on the table as well, and we can combine options. So that that's another one for me always have a choice and we can build this in into our everyday leadership let's stop let's get some choice here because that helps an awful lot when we've got a brutal fact has come onto the table uh, then we've already exercised that muscle of beginning to explore you know and find options anything yeah. else in any other techniques or disciplines or or approaches you think that we should be mentioning here you know one of the techniques that we use, we both use in our Vistas groups, which is uh, issue processing. 
which in fact shows the reason it works so well in a Vistage group is that they don't work together and they come from different businesses and therefore it ups, I think it naturally ups the quality of the questioning and to a large extent, the quality of the answers, because if somebody's sitting in the hot seat and it's their business we're talking about, and we're going around the table and saying, okay, I've got some questions here and you're only allowed questions. You're not allowed solutions as we know. People start thinking, oh, that's an interesting question. Then I've got a different question. And people really want to see the person in the hot seat doing really well. So they want to see them get over it. So they have a kind of, they have an interest, an amazing drive and commitment to seeing other people doing well, even though they're not in that business. And perhaps because they're not in that business, they're more challenging. And we've both seen that. They're more challenging. And then, you know, once you've once you've bottomed out those questions and we as facilitators of that process get to a point where we say, questions aren't, aren't quite deep enough. Why don't we take it over here? Why don't we just ask more emotional questions, more feeling questions, more, you know, what are you afraid of questions? Let's 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 create a deeper level of thinking around the questioning and and so once we we've really bottomed that out we start to move into okay what are the different solutions and we know from that process that when you start then going down with say 12 people around the table with what ideas have you got you get masses of different ideas you don't just get here's here's the here's the way we're going to approach this you get a whole plethora of different ideas and some are completely conflicting they've gone a complete 180 on somebody else's idea somebody says you should definitely get rid of this person or stop this product and somebody says no you should invest another twenty thousand in it or you need to develop them and give them a coach and a buddy and, and they've got great potential and every idea in between and so i think you know, there's massive value in the, you know, you mentioned non-exec directors, you know, getting objectivity to your thinking. Otherwise you can get this group think we're all in this. You, we, we all think the same always. And that's the challenge for a leader as well. Well, there, there's group think, uh, but there's also that Einstein quote, isn't there? We cannot solve our problems with the same thinking we used when we created them. Yeah. So it's really healthy here, I think, to not always explore this with the internal team cast net wider than that okay i mean i've got i've got a couple more thoughts here one of them is you know it comes down to how we run our run our meetings our leadership team meetings management meetings meetings with our teams are are we signing into those meetings effectively you know and there's there's a ton of ways to to do this in one to ones one of my favorite questions was what, what's the single most valuable topic we can spend time on in this conversation? Mm-hmm. And in meeting signings periodically, let's go around the room and you know what's the what's the number one topic that that is affecting you right now that you don't have the answer to? Let's just go around the room and find out what those those are. Let's get good at surfacing issues right up front. And I can add to that, Ben. There's a great one. Mm-hmm. Uh, recently, I started to work with what's an issue that you believe somebody has that hasn't been surfaced. Now that's a, you've got to have a pretty close culture in your team, a real trusting environment there, but it's the elephant in the room, isn't it? It's like, we all know Sansa's got an issue and it's not being put on the table. And I, uh, I legitimized that with a form at a recent meeting I was running and said, look, oh, everyone, everyone fill out the form. You know, what's, what's an issue you'd like to hear from somebody around the table? That we haven't been we haven't been talking about you know and what's a topic we need to discuss that we've never put on the table or that you believe is important to this group and mm. so i think as as we've said at many occasion thinking those techniques and those questions through is is vital for that for us to keep you know keep thinking keep growing keep learning yeah, I mean, uh, you need to be a strong leader to do that. Yes, you, you said you need a well-developed team, well-developed trust and, and vulnerability. I think you need to be a good, a good strong leader yep. to do that as well because yeah. people won't use the right language. They're not used to, you know, and they're not equipped to because they're looking you know, from the outside of another part of the business. They can see a problem, but they can't necessarily articulate that problem well so it often comes out in a sort of a a, a clunky mm. messy 
way and as people search for words they might use judgmental words so you've got to be a strong leader to take those as they come onto the table paraphrase them rephrase them turn them into neutral neutral language and really police and curate the the safety in that session but i like it and you've reminded me of you know another way that i used to do uh, a similar thing which was same setup managers of the business different parts of the business of functional managers uh, uh, and so on and i'd ask them yeah equip them with that wonderful tool the post-it notes what are the places elsewhere in the business as well as your own function where you think we could really benefit from some clean sheet thinking you know what do we need to rethink Mm. think afresh Mm. yeah and just get them going on that Mm. for for 15 minutes or so and all you're doing is you're inviting them to identify places for clean sheet thinking but it's a neutral language it's a bit mm-hmm. it's a bit safer mm-hmm. yeah and we've got to play with this we've got to experiment uh, with this and find uh, the ways that work you know that work for our teams yeah so so ian actually we're we've generated a lot of ideas and back to back to the question the stockdale paradox which is to have unwavering faith that we will prevail and at the same time, confront the most brutal facts of the current reality, whatever they might be. We've talked about both how to get those brutal facts on the table. And I just want to check something. You know, do we feel that in our discussion, we've also talked about the things that equip an organisation to be able to deal with those brutal facts? I can think of examples recently where I know an organization who they really sat down and, and dealt with them and have got through them uh, you know, during this pandemic and they're in a, fu- a, a fantastic place now because they addressed them head on early on and they were very well equipped. I mean, this is, this is what we've mentioned again and again, isn't it? You know, I, I can go back to Phil Jackson. This is We've got to be we've got to be leaders who are growth mindset, who will learn and develop, who will who will grab new techniques, who will try them, who will who will have a a wide circle of people, be it a peer group, be it non-execs, be it just people we're going to have dinner with and we'll talk to about how they're running their businesses and what they're doing and 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 how to support them. And we should never stop trying, you know, we should never stop. In, in, in inventing new ways of doing things and copying people you know there's as somebody once said to me you know when we were talking about tools and techniques and 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 listening to what other people were doing is you know still steal with pride he said you know if you see a great idea out there a great technique a great tool give it a go and learn and grow and challenge your people and you know you mentioned this word nimble early on i think that's what we've got to be well, as soon as we stand still and we think we know the answer, we're lost. Hmm. What about you, Ben? I think we've definitely talked about how to get the, the brutal facts onto the table. And we've also t- touched upon two things which I think are the answer here. We've got to constantly be leading our teams and teaching them and reinforcing their ability to generate ideas. They've got to be great at generating ideas, good ones, bad ones. Uh, but idea generation actually is a, a key skill, I think, uh, for, for any organisation. And secondly, let's also lead them to always be in a position of choice. Mm. Mm. And if that's habitual, mm. you know, if that's the way we work, then you know, when we do hit an existential crisis, what's going to happen? It's going to get put on the table, mm-hmm. probably as a question. Then people are going to start generating ideas. They're going to have a range of ways to do that. And then they're going to get into a position of choice. What you're saying is you're not going to pull out of the bag this new way of working when an existential crisis comes along. You've got to create an organisation that works in this way permanently. And then when an existential crisis come along, this isn't something you're going to sit around and go, put throw your hands in the hair and go, you know, what do we do? You've got a way of working. You know how to do yeah. this. You feel confident that you've, you ask 
questions you question storm you come up with ideas you look at options you look at a range of options you address the brutal facts you're vulnerable you do all those things you embed those in the way you work and you're going to be in a pretty good place when you're faced with some of these big crises that may may come up yeah absolutely right in fact when the big crisis comes up what we want to be able to say is this is what we've trained for ben we've covered a huge amount of ground here and we've gone over everything from the brutal facts, the, the Stockdale paradox, the unwavering belief. We've got tools and techniques. We've talked about vulnerability and culture. We've talked about questioning techniques. We've talked about idea generation. We've talked about the influence of external people to support our teams. Where, what, where are you left after all that? You know, what's the, what's the big thing you, you, you're taking away from this? The way I bookend that because I think those are the big things Ian we want to be able to say this is what we've trained for and I'll, I'll bring it back to to Gene Kranz you know were there times when people just panicked and his answer well in those moments we we calmly laid out the options and failure wasn't amongst them hmm. yeah that's what we're aiming for that's what we're aiming for couldn't agree more Ben well said great have you got any idea what our next episode is? Our next episode is called Dream or Dream Team. And it's a face-off between you and I. You think the most important thing is an exceptionally high-performing team. And as you know from my TEDx talk, it's about an unreasonable dream. So mm. we're gonna we're gonna talk about that. Bring it on. See you in a couple of weeks, Ian. <laughs> Cheers, Ben. Bye. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Gritty Leaders Club. If you'd like to hear more, please subscribe and join the club. If you'd like to ask a question or offer an opinion or suggest a guest, please get in touch with Ben at benwales.com or Ian at ianwindle.com. We'd love you to join the club and tell us what you think.